Konigstein Road in the east to Casitas Gap in the west, and the orange curtain is descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hi everyone, I'm Brett Bradigan, editor of Ojai's Magazines, the quarterly and monthly. Our guest for this episode is Doug Halter, Ventura City Council person and landscape architect. He's also the author of the book, Give Me Time. He and his partner were diagnosed with HIV in 1987 when it was a death sentence, with no treatment options and many of their friends going from vigorous good health to wasting away to death within weeks and months. When his partner died in 1990, Doug figured his turn was next. But a radical new treatment, AZT, gave him hope. And then when the protease inhibitor protocol came out a few years later, Doug got his health and his purpose in life. He met the man who would become his husband and his life was fully back on track. And he has become a tireless advocate for causes near and dear, aid, support, and advocacy, restoring and beautifying his hometown of Ventura and many other service projects. Hey, Doug, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. It's great yeah, to be here. It's good to have you. So I've been eager to get you on because I read your book and it was really fascinating. And I thought, well, let's, let's have Doug Halter and talk about his journey. <laughs> thank you so much. It's, uh, it's fascinating. So you were telling me now you're like the uh, landscape designer of uh, some of the more uh, prominent and and complicated and lovely homes in Ventura County. It seems that way. We seem yeah. to get a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, but I'm wondering what uh, it's been like in the pandemic because it's uh, you know finding workers and and clients and everything else it must have been very disruptive it's been crazy it really has i mean in the best of times we're always short labor but during the pandemic uh the labor shortage is exponentially worse so finding labor um finding product uh, price increases scheduling um all that's been exponentially more complicated since the pandemic so it's uh just another challenge just something else to try to figure out a solution for and the uh you know do you see inflation? Is that like huge? Is working its way through the whole system? I'm I'm actually pretty surprised that we're not seeing it throughout every segment of society right now, because in in construction it's been huge. Um, uh, steel, lumber, uh, even brick material. Um, there's a few things that's that's escaped that so far, but for the most part, you're not talking two or three or five percent increases. You're talking fifty percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, we used to get uh, copper stolen off of jobs. Oh yeah, know? I remember those. Remember Tweakers those days? Were yes. We're taking <laughs> copper, stripping yes. out the wires out of these abandoned houses, wherever else they could find them. Well, nowadays they're taking plywood. Plywood. Who would ever have thought that plywood would be so expensive that people are stealing plywood, but they are. Well, all these homeless encampments and the- That's true. River bottom. Yeah. Now you're a politician. Tell me what that's <laughs> been like during a pandemic. Okay, now we're talking. Let's see here. Uh, <laughs> it's been, one, running a campaign during the pandemic was uh, very challenging because um, especially we were encouraged not to walk uh, precincts, yeah. which is very, um, very contrary to what we've done before. Now, I've run before. I ran a couple of times before. So this was not new to me. So I kind of had it down, uh, except that this was the first time I won. So whatever we did this time worked. 
So what we ended up doing is standing on corners, waving signs so people can see my sign and get my name yeah. out there. We did a lot more mailings, and it helped to have all the endorsements that I had, too. And what was the... Now, your Ventura's been in districts for a long time. What district are you in? I'm in District 2. Um, Ventura just went to districts about four years ago. Okay, so. before Ojai, which two correct. years ago. Yeah, that's correct. Most of, the, most of the cities in the state are going to districts. And the whole purpose of that was to add more uh, represent, representative diversity on the, on the city councils than yeah. what has normally been the case. It's a good argument to do that because at large districts, you're going to get people that are just more motivated, not necessarily representative of those neighborhoods. Yeah. Just in a town like Ojai, it's so small that it doesn't, it didn't work. You know, we didn't yeah. get the minority representation that that was designed for. I actually couldn't imagine it being districts in a city much smaller than Ventura. Yeah, which is 110,000. About 110,000 people. And because you still have the challenge that it's one thing to elect uh, people that's from a specific neighborhood, um, but you're really representing the entire city still. Yes. You know? Yeah. Of course. Uh, because the, the issues uh, are really about budget, about financing, about uh, police and fire, and about infrastructure. But each individual neighborhood does have, and Ventura has enough uniqueness to it that it now, is makes your, sense. Now, is downtown, downtown Ventura part of your district? Uh, only part of downtown. Part of downtown? Downtown is split between three districts. Oh, so, well, that's good. I'm glad that everybody's got a piece oh, of the pie, or at least three yeah. out of the five districts have a piece of the three pie. Three of the there. seven. Three of the seven. Ventura, seven okay. Yeah. Um, but the interesting part's going to be this, Brad, is the, um, uh, with the new census, is redistricting this year. So we're going to have to redistrict. And Ventura is so new at the districts anyways that uh, my fear is that our district boundaries are going to shift east. And I'm about two blocks inside my district right now. No, so it no, may be an interesting be, thing in four years. It may be in a different district. And <laughs> it may be the case. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know you have, I've been to your house. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's like Tuscan Villa oh, up on you. the hillside. And it looks like when you come in, it looks like you're just one level, one story, one street street level. Yeah. But there's three it's tiers, three levels. isn't there? Three yeah. levels. It's, um, it's truly like an iceberg house. It's like <laughs> what you see in the front is like only seven-eighths of what there actually is. It typically looks only like it's one story. You know, but the yeah. way it's built and contoured with the hillside, it's um, probably, it's truly the most beautiful thing we've ever created. With the help of Mar Martha Pucciotti, helped me with it, too, quite a bit. Yeah. But it's, um, I'm enjoying every moment of being in that house. Because you can go out on every level and get ocean views, pretty much, right? It's about a 280-degree ocean view. Oh. It's just the way it sits on that downtown hillside. We could see everything from the Santa Monica's. And on a clear day, we could actually see Hope Ranch to the far west, northwest. Oh, wow. So. And what about Catalina? On the, like I, after a storm, maybe you can peek around? The, oh, I, because Oxnard Plain sticks out into that? Uh, Point Magoo sticks out. Yeah, so Point Magoo. I think we've seen as far south as San Miguel Island. Okay. But uh, nonetheless, just watching the ocean change colors every day is spectacular. 
Yeah, must be. Because I know you're busy, that must be a, a refuge. Uh, between going home and seeing the views and going home to my now four dogs. Um, <laughs> now four dogs. Were there five before or three before? I had three. Oh, okay. So you added a dog, not taking one away. Yeah, well, it's kind of three and a half because I inherited my mom's little dog. And oh, okay. My mom loved her and my mom unfortunately passed away in Jan in January. And so the least I could do is take care of her. Uh, youngest child, which yeah, is a ten-year-old baby. Yes. So it's like your little, uh, uh, your half half sibling. Given the fact my other dogs are labs and a Rottweiler, it's um, uh, I barely notice this dogs around. Well, the li little dogs are generally pretty good at taking care of themselves. They, what they lack in size, they make up in tenacity. I, you know, it's so funny to watch uh, watch the big dogs play with her because yeah. uh, she holds her own for being a, a pint size compared to yeah, the other Yeah, they don't dogs. see themselves as small. They no. have hearts of lions, those yeah. little dogs. They're, uh, the way she barks at them and keeps them away from her and then she uh, lets them lick them once in a while. Um, the Rottweiler loves to put uh, her foot on... Uh, Bella's head, yeah, which is pretty cute. <laughs> yeah, just like, hey, kid, back off here. Yeah, calm down. <laughs> Stop barking at me. <laughs> so, um, speaking of which, now tell, I know a little bit about your growing up, but let's uh, tell where'd you grow up and what was that like? It seemed like uh, idyllic, like a bit of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyerishness. Well, I, I appreciate that because you know, I, I think you know everybody has a story, and for me. Uh, I just know that I've been extremely fortunate and I've been told over and over again um, uh, from presentations that I've given over the years through the AIDS pandemic and other things I've been involved in where I have many people always come up to me and say, Doug, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And, you know, I'm humbled because I know everyone has a story. Yes. But I do, in hindsight, as I look at the many chapters of my life, literally, um, I know I've been extremely fortunate. And... My growing up was in Northern California, and I thought, you know, every birthday, every holiday, we had 50 to 80 people at every event. And because my grandparents were Italian immigrant, immigrants, and um, uh, they were good Italian Catholics. Uh, and they were procreators. They were. They knew how to do that. <laughs> and they were very proud to be in America. They're like, I'm one of six, and my dad, uh, you know, that had some other pregnancies that didn't go to term. Um, you know, uh, yeah. my dad would, every time my mom get pregnant, he would say, well, I was just poking fun at her, but she took me seriously. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> my my grandparents all came with um, eight brothers and sisters. Oh, man. Both sets of Both grandparents? Sets. Yes. Wow. So that'd be your great aunts and uncles. You had a whole tribe it, of them. Huh? So every holiday, every birthday, every gathering that we did, which was pretty frequent, we... Uh, we always had no less than 50, 50 to 80 people yeah. and a lot of yelling, a lot of loudness, you know. Um, and cousins the same age, roughly, that you ran in packs. Yeah. And now, of yeah. course, we're probably even closer to my immediate cousins. You know, my mom had uh, two brothers and one sister. And so we, I would say we would see each other almost weekly or uh, bi-weekly, yeah. you know. But San Jose was pre a predominantly Italian town initially. And that's why yeah, so much farm town, right? It was a farm town, and the Italians lived in downtown uh, San Jose. But my grandfather lived in, uh, had an orchard in Campbell, and lived up in Santa Cruz Mountains. Yeah, you and, were talking about being in the redwoods, and that must yeah, have been really exciting. It's um, he fell in love with the piece of land when he first got here and purchased the land, and um, I was fortunate enough to buy it off my aunts and uncles. 
I wanted simply to preserve it in the family because that's where all of our events used to happen. Yeah. You know, so a lot of good memories. And my grandparents' house, unfortunately, went over in the earthquake in 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake. Yes, I remember. It took down the Bay Bridge. Yeah, that's right. And it was centered, the center. Right of, during the World Series. Yeah, I remember that too, 502 or something at night. It's funny, yeah. the things you remember in life. Well, it was during the commute. But man, yeah. It really could have been much, much worse than it was. Well, the double-decker freeways probably were never a good idea. Yeah, just um, structurally. Um, yeah. And the ones in Oakland, I think it was the 880. Um, that was where most of the uh, fatalities had occurred. Yeah. My grandparents were in their house when it went over. And the epicenter of that earthquake was at Loma Prieta, which is about a mile a mile from their house. Really? But the property is, you know, growing up, uh, we talk about idyllic. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids. I, my dad was in the Navy. He came from Canton, Ohio. Uh, so I'm really happy to The football Hall of Fame. I've been there more times than I could count. I used to buy those little uh, dolls with the Bobby... Bobby Bobbleheads. Bobbleheads, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we used to go back every other year. Um, but nonetheless, my grandfather and I were really close. Uh, he was the uh, biggest mentor in my life. He taught me more about life than I ever thought he was teaching me about life. But I think and about him, the gardening too, right? Is that a big part of what you learned from him? He had his own orchard, apricots and prunes. He we used to compete by the time I was ten. Uh, I, I was competing with my grandfather and who grew the best garden, zucchini yeah. and tomatoes and green beans and cucumbers, everything. Oh fun. I've always loved plants. I, I think um, I had over a hundred house plants in my room when I was nine, when they discovered that I had allergies really bad. <laughs> so I, I uh, had to go on allergy shots for most of oh, my man. teen years. And, and that was directly from your, your horticultural experiments. It was the, the molds and the, uh, the pollen that was really, yeah. really bad for me. But you know what, um, like I said, uh, that's the worst it got. I was also a swimmer growing up. I loved the water. A still lot of, do? Still do. I, I, I anything to do with water, I'm usually game for that. Yeah, I learned how to surf in Santa Cruz. I uh, a lot of our neighbors in San Jose when we were living in San Jose uh, were older. A lot of the kids were older, so uh, we were the young ones. Me and my closest friends, Mary and Susie, would go with them to Santa Cruz and watch them surf or on the boardwalk. On the boardwalk, and we had a. a skip Did you ever board. see that movie Lost Boys? Yes, that was filmed. Vampire there. movie. Yeah, that's one of Santa Santa Cruz's notoriety. That's all I know about Santa Cruz. This is what I learned from. No, I've been there a few times. It's gorgeous. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Really beautiful place. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, I was just driving back down from up there um, just last week. We went up for a day trip because I'm doing some modifications on the house right now, and um, I got to tell you, we live in what in truly one of the most beautiful places on earth. I all the couldn't way up. agree more. It's amazing. Really? You get, I get moving so quick that I forget uh, to notice sometimes. But all the way up, I mean, whether it's Paso Robos or whether it's San Luis Obispo or my destination up in Santa Cruz. Except for Atascadero, we carved that out as being uh, outside the pale of beauty there. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a bit of Bakersfield right in the middle of the Central Coast. There. Yeah, yeah. No, I like Bakersfield. I shouldn't talk shit about No, it's, it's funny because even Atascadero, it's funny you would say that because um, Atascadero is really building a, a kind of pretty cute downtown area. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So I was impressed with that, especially now being on the city council in Ventura. Um, I'm kind of looking at how do we, uh, one of my greatest passions is the city of Ventura and trying to see how we could preserve what we love about our community, but continue to prosper and grow the way we need to grow as a successful and sustainable community. And and diversify the economy. Absolutely. You know, I think most of our lives, really, the state has, um, uh, you know, we've all seen beautiful hillsides and valleys transformed into the same homogenized tract development. Sprawl everywhere. And so now it's about, I think we've come of age where it's about uh, regaining and reowning the uniqueness that each one of our cities has. Yeah, that's whatever that part. essential character is. And definitely Ventura is one of those places that kind of was able to preserve some of that integrity of its downtown core because it kind of got passed over on the whole growth thing. And that ended up being really, really essential for Keeping that, it could have just ended up like, uh, you know, Thousand Oaks or, um, you know, Reseda or Northridge or any of those places. Because those tentacles of growth, you can see them coming down the Camarillo grade. Like, man, we're we're lucky. That's a great way to describe it because it really was like tentacles of uh, influence from Los Angeles. And our east side uh, is, you know, the newest part of our city. And so it, it was a affected by that that type of sprawl but we maintained our west side in the downtown or downtown midtown areas which really is uh, talk about inclusionary housing we have housing that organically grew over 150 years that has 6,600 square foot homes next to 6,000 square foot homes yeah so it includes all economic levels it's a very diverse uh, area and ventura is for a city that doesn't have its own four-year college it's a fairly well-educated city. Yeah, you know? because it's near, like, you know, it's just a it's, lovely place to live, so people want to live there. In Ventura, what's always amazed me is being in landscaping now, um, followed my passion after years of being in the professional world, and it's been extremely good to me to do so. Um, yeah, now you've been landscape world for 30 plus years right? about almost 30 years now yeah i happened into so this a, is like your third career then huh? it is <laughs> your first career being it you were in i was information uh, technology was and then sales and sales computer systems yeah um, well being able to i see why you did well with you know if you know the technology and you're able to sell it to people the, the whole world was your oyster back in the 80s, 80s 90s. and 90s, early 90s. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, I didn't know a lot about how to use the computers, but I had a strong enough imagination and expectation of what technology can do for us. Yeah, the function of it mm-hmm. and how it can make our lives more productive and my, easy. My uh, degree was from UC Santa Barbara uh, Chemical Engineering. And I've always loved math and science, so I tend to think as an engineer, but I've been fortunate and blessed to have a very creative streak of... Yeah, to bring the math and the mm -hmm. the art together, yeah. So I've spent a lot of time in the cultural arts as well. I think you read that in the books. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to talk about that before we get out of here, but we'll stick a pin in that. I want to to review some of your... Uh, downtown Ventura projects and maybe talk a little bit about what's uh, applicable for Ojai. Okay. Because we're, we're, you know, um, 
be in love to death, I guess would be one way to put it, because this place is swarming with, with tourists since the pandemic, especially. Oh, yeah. It's been it's been different. But yeah, we'll go back to that. So let's talk about your, um, you know, coming out, what mm -hmm. that was like, because it, we're about the same age. I think you're about I, the same age as me. Yeah. So that was a different world back then. That wasn't quite as accepting and as open. And, you yeah. know, you had come from a big Italian family. It probably was a bit... Uh, it was a bit, uh, fearful trepidation. Yeah. Absolutely right. And I, I kind of go through all that in my book because um, my book is really the many chapters of my life combined. And it was very therapeutic writing it. David Wilk, yeah. David Wilk helped me write it. And he was he became, I consider him a very good friend. Now, David Wilk, is he a tra brain trauma survivor? Is his, that something? Um, his daughter, I believe. Okay. Because... Yeah. I think he gives programs about that. Or maybe it's somebody with a similar name. No, I believe that's probably David. Uh, yeah. David's done everything. Talk about entrepreneurial. Yeah. I, uh, I was, uh, he had uh, uh, Pong. Remember, I think it was uh, Pog. Pog. Um, oh, those uh, bottle cap yes. things from the he 80s and 90s. sold millions and, of those. Oh, <laughs> that started like some game in Hawaii. It was yeah. like... And then it got over here, and it was like everywhere back in. The, I think my kids were in that that slot of pog. And well, him and I got had a really good time getting to know each other. And initially, when uh, he agreed to help me uh, write this, is we agreed to meeting twice a week for two hours, and that was a big accomplishment for me because two hours is a big stretch of time. Yeah, twice I mean, a week. you're a busy man. You said you were got like 15 jobs going on at any one time. Usually about 15 jobs going on wow. and about 70 employees. So it's uh, what turned out to be just a passion with my landscaping um, uh, became a pretty successful business. And that's yeah. part of my lessons in life. And I feel like I'm kind of jumping all over the place a little bit, but I'll just uh, mention to you that um, the book was very therapeutic. Yeah. David helped me organize it. Um, we got to know each other very well. And those two hours twice a week ended up my to be my favorite uh, part of the week. I used to look forward to that. And I, I miss them now because we finished yeah, the book. sure. But from um, a growing up standpoint, uh, I told you a little bit about my Italian family and uh, uh, being the youngest of three, in the, three of the kids and um, being a swimmer and loving plants and doing gardening as a kid, only because my grandfather taught me about that. But uh, coming out, I, I, I realized, I didn't know, as a, I was pretty naive as a kid, younger kid. I didn't really realize until I was 14 that um, the words that we used to call each other on the playground uh, were me. I always knew who I was attracted to, but I didn't know enough about sex to know that it had anything what it was to do with sexual. What it was about. Because where yeah. was the context for that then? There really wasn't There anything. wasn't. There wasn't anything yeah. other than, you, when I, in hindsight, I knew who I had crushes on. And I remember being horrified when a teacher at 14 explained to us why we can't say these words on the playground. And I remember that sent me into a fairly deep depression. And most people didn't know I was in that depression. Because yeah, I was, he put on a cheery face. Even though I, I was slumping the, through the world. Yeah, I was the jokester at school. You know, for the most part, always cracking jokes and teachers would love to pick on me because I took it well. Um, yeah. But when I got home, I remember the loneliness of not being able to date who I wanted to date. Or just being different, especially mm -hmm. at that age when everything is all social and wanting to fit in. And That's exactly right. Even yeah. now, I mean, I think growing up is, well, the dynamics of the world has changed. A lot of those feelings of 
you want to be different in a way that's cool. But if you're different in a way that you think people will hate you or despise you or um, look down upon you, um, that's a very scary spot to be as a teenager. Um, so I didn't really come out until I was in college. I had a girlfriend there for three years who I ended up having to come out to um, only because as you got she wanted to get married. That's why. Yeah. Well, you know, three years together like, hey, in wait, college. Fisher cut bait, man. <laughs> but the thing, you know, for me, uh, as you've gotten to know me, is what you see is what you get. I'm not somebody that can pretend anything. So it came down to, for me, can I pretend the rest of my life that I feel something that I don't feel? And can I be happy? And can the person I'm with be happy? Or do I have the courage and, uh, to be the person that I believe God created yeah. me to be? And yeah. it took me a lot to overcome that. It was a big deal for me to accept the fact that I was gay. It was we had no role models back then. We didn't have Ellen and Will and Grace came on years later. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and but, people I think don't understand how powerful those role models can be or see that modeling and the culture that oh this is a, a place for me where it's okay. Now your brother is gay. Is that what I? Uh, my brother was gay. Yeah, he passed away about seventeen years ago. From just uh, no, he uh, went in for a cold and found out he had leukemia, uh, and passed away two weeks after that. Oh uh, my God! That was another rude awakening in my life of how precious every single day is, and just enjoy the people in your life as as much as you can. Yeah, because relation relationships are really everything. That's what life's all about: is relationships and connections. I I, I kind of feel that um, my own analysis, having seen a lot of loss in my life, and we. Hadn't got into that, but as you know, I've been living with AIDS for 40 years now. 40 years? 40 years. No one 40 years ago would ever think anybody would be able to say that. I've been so fortunate on many fronts. So you lived with it, and that's a big mm -hmm. section of the book is, you know, you described the day that you and your partner got your diagnosis, and it was just nothing to indicate that you really had any issues. It was no. just an excess of caution. you just like, oh, we should get ourselves checked out. Right. And then... There it is. It's like you describe vividly everything that was your sense of uh, the weather and the shoes you were wearing and the squeak <laughs> of them and all these details. And it's so fascinating to me how these big moments in our lives, good and bad, just time stops yep. and everything becomes so descriptive and and frozen like that it's just isn't that uh, it, i mean like you can probably put yourself back in that moment just like a snap of the fingers ironically just like we were talking about the earthquake in 89 um there's certain moments in your life that you can remember every detail 9 11 a lot of us know where we're at then for me when my partner randy morrison at the time and i went in it was uh to get tested it was only because we were dotting an i crossing a t it was not that we our lives were going great. We bought our first house together. Uh, our careers were taking off. Um, we were young. I was 27 and uh, he was uh, 20, uh, 23 at the time. And living in Ventura, you know, how, how much better can that get? And we went in and to our surprise, um, two weeks later, we found out that we were both positive. And Wow. And we were and also at that told, point there was that was a nothing. death sentence. There was no treatments. AZT even hadn't come out yet. That's exactly right. And matter of fact, it was um, uh, we were told that it was too late for us. That we needed to go home and get our affairs in order, and that uh, we needed to uh, share 
our experience with others so that they know what mistakes we made so they don't make the same mistakes, which was kind of disheartening because the only mistake I made was I fell in love with somebody, you know? Yeah. Well, you also yeah. talk in there tragically about the lack of compassion that you receive from yeah. healthcare workers in the community and not to excuse it, but mm -hmm. nobody really knew what was going on. But their default setting was fear and suspicion. That's not, exactly right. Not courage of trying to figure out what this is. And, you know, they're, they're signed up for compassion and, mm -hmm. and service. And, I mean, but, it was such, it must have just been doubly heart crushing. Well, not only to have this, what was essentially a death sentence, but to be met with such uh, fear and suspicion. I got to tell you, you know, having gone through the coming out period in my life, of accepting that I'm somebody that back then society really did not like. I mean, uh, being homosexual was not something that was talked about back then. So then having that experience and coming to grips with who I am and knowing that I could have a happy life and perhaps even meet somebody I want to spend my life with, and then to find out that we're both, we both have this death sentence and they were calling it the gay plague, and it was because oh, yeah. we were gay, so they thought. God's just you know, burning vengeance disease. Yes. I remember Jerry Falwell, one of those yeah. people, coming out like that. And not to, you know, uh, again, give them any, any, but, you know, I think it was Pat Robertson that, that was one of the first of those religious leaders to kind of come That's around. Exactly right. Like It was like, I don't know what happened. If it was usually somebody in their family gets AIDS or comes out and then they realize oh wait a minute this affects me uh it's tragic that it has to be that that it can't be just some open acceptance across the, without having to have some personal connection to it like so many of these like especially republican politicians will mm -hmm. have a you know uh, come out to acceptance you know when their son or their daughter or somebody comes you know comes it's exactly out. right yeah. it, it's really interesting to me if you step back and just watch people i find people fascinating and i i love people even at 61 i still love people and i love meeting new people but i gotta tell you i think i've also come to grips with the fact that uh, i believe the easiest way whether you lead a family or lead a community or lead the world or lead a country, um, the easiest thing to do to lead if you want people to follow you is to make people feel threatened, make people be in fear, um, to divide people against the each other. Othering. The, the othering. Other, yes. Yes. Uh, pointing out that these people are causing this. It was the same way with AIDS. AIDS was those people are getting infected, infected and it's because of who they are and what they're doing. And people were in fear. People were in fear and they weren't sure uh, if it was going to, you know, how far it's going to spread through the world. We know today that over 40 million people in the world has come down with AIDS and there's still no cure, there's still no treatment. But I believe a lot of the research that went on and still going on with AIDS uh, has helped us through this pandemic. I um, believe that's true. Just the infrastructure of developing treatments and vaccines. And exactly. And uh, the laboratories and the science and yeah, you know, it it upsets me to see how politicized uh, yet another virus has become, you know, because we're really I I've come to realize that um, mankind's enemy is really not each other. Mankind's enemy is a disease and poverty and hunger and lack of education, and we're all here for a very short period of time and. We should be spending that time to develop our own unique capabilities and helping others develop theirs and enjoying, at the end of the day, 
even today, I think back and did I enjoy myself? Did I do something that was worthwhile during that day? I've had to think that way because I had no idea, you know, 20, 34 years ago, I didn't think I had more than a few months left. Yeah, so every day years. was like a big deal. Every day, and long-term planning for me was three months. Yeah. You know, um, when I was told to get my affairs in order, I didn't even know what they meant by that. I didn't even know if I had insurance, <laughs> you know? Um, but when my partner passed away in 1990, that was... Now, that was one of the parts of the book that mm -hmm. struck me because Randy had elevated T-counts, or pretty decent T-counts, and everything right. was a measurement of your T-counts, which is your... Right. You'll have to explain yeah, it to that's me, easy. but it's your... Um, your, your immune response or your... Well, your T-cells are like the fighter cells. They're like the soldiers going out and fight germs and viruses that invade yeah. your, your body. And um, unfortunately, the virus actually attacks your T-cells directly and becomes part of its RNA. And, um, and those, your T-cells are supposed to fight the virus actually becomes factories to produce more virus. And so your body responds by producing more T cells that then get attacked by the virus and become factories. And over a period of years, usually, usually on six plus years, um, your T cells start going lower and lower and lower. They can't, the body can't keep up with the devastation that the virus is causing. So what they did is um, they discovered the virus in 84, HIV was the virus that was just doing this bad work. And, um, but they came up with another term, AIDS, Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, because prior to that name, uh, it was called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. That's how stigmatized this disease was. But AIDS, they realized it didn't matter who you loved, it didn't matter who you had sex with, who you used needles with, um, tattooed with, uh, or... Blood transfusions. blood transfusions. I can't donate blood to this day because I was in England in 19... Oh, that was for the... Mad cow disease. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were in England during that time period. Yeah. Yeah, and I was a vegetarian that whole time, and yet I can't donate blood. But yeah. well, that was a weird time back in the early 80s. It seemed like the, everything was coming around. We didn't really have the science to wrap our minds around it, and it just seemed kind of like you know, dark. Ironically, you mentioned that. It was. You know, and I, I tell you, ironically, right now, even though we know 90% of the people that's had AIDS in this world are heterosexual, and it's men, women, and children. It's uh, it's very it's very simple. It's a virus that uh, um, has to be uh, transmitted almost directly from bodily fluid to blood contact, and um, so it's not it's not as easy as COVID to transmit. Not even close. Not yeah. even close. But it's the same type of virus, though. Um, and the irony is that you talk about not being able to get blood. Um, it's been even with all this knowledge about AIDS today, uh, people who are gays gay men still can't get blood yeah even when there's a lot of even if they have no virus even if there's no virus and we know now with hiv tests with uh, viral load tests to see how much virus is in your system uh we had no idea uh that your immune system could repair itself that t-cells could ever come back i had a, a healthy person would have 800 to 1200 t-cells per i think cc is what it is and um in 87, I had 187, 183 T-cells. Um, they, they came up with a term called AIDS. Anybody with less than 200 T-cells was given an AIDS diagnosis. And what that meant is that AIDS was nothing more than uh, the latter stages of HIV infection. At 200 T-cells or less, 
uh, death was imminent. Yeah, you were open to all kinds of opportunistic infections, right. many of which are very, very rare, like Kaposi's sarcoma, that they didn't even really had ever even seen it before. No. Pneumocystis and... Pneumocystis pneumonia, CMV, MAI, toxoplasmosis. I can't even pronounce these diseases, and I know yeah. I've seen what they do. I've seen how devastating they can be. I've been uh, fortunate. Randy, uh, although he was a little younger and had a stronger immune system, uh, Randy Morrison, he um, got sick one summer, and um, uh, it progressed from CMV uh, to pneumocystis pneumonia, and then he passed away right before Christmas in 1990. And that was truly the biggest um, transition. My life completely changed at that moment. Um, yeah. Did you see that English um, like four-part miniseries about the early days of AIDS? And it was told through this uh, woman and her friends, uh, and they all shared a flat in London. Theater people, very colorful. They're just having this amazing time. Did that just come out recently? Just yes, yeah. we just started watching that. You think we've seen everything by now with a year and a half in shelter? Yeah, device. I know. I'm still catching up. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but it was it was interesting because the woman who was sort of the mother hen of this flat and all these flamboyant and brilliant people watching them ball away one by one. It's really tragic. She is still around today, and her husband is a doctor and a colleague of my girlfriend who was a doctor at the Royal Free Hospital in London, and that was her. Uh, she was an AIDS doctor, monitoring. This was post-protease okay. inhibitors, so yep. at that point, it was a very manageable disease, and I imagine that's yes. the same basic protocol that you're on. It's just like diabetes or something, you just got to manage the numbers and keep your T-cells. That's correct. Up. I mean, yeah. I, like I said, I, I, I've been very fortunate in that. Uh, I went on AZT when that first came out. It was a horrible drug that came out. In yeah, it was really, really rough. Really, really bad. And, um, um, but it did work, though. It had some it efficacy. Had, the intent was to try to get the T-cells to stop falling, but it never worked for me. I had... Uh, I was taking 20 capsules a day, which was very potent and pretty bad. And then two new drugs came out of the same type of um, a chemical backup or combina combination of, as ACT. And then Scott Hitt was a good friend of mine from college who started helped to start Pacific Oaks Medical Group in Los Angeles. I guess I'm allowed to say that here. Yeah. Is, um, but uh, they were specializing in HIV and AIDS. And I didn't realize he actually did what he had dreamed he was going to do when he was in college. Became a doctor. And to my good fortune, I was able to find him, and he was very active in the gay community. Uh, he became President Clinton's chair for the AIDS Advisory Council. Oh, wow. So he got me on so the first... So you felt like you were in really at the I was in best possible hands. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, he got me on the first protease inhibitor trial. It was called L542. There was 100 this people. This was like 93, 90, 94. Yeah, I got on early. the day after the earthquake in 94. Another earthquake in our lifetime. Oh, yes. The Northridge. Northridge. <laughs> I sure remember that. Yes. So, I yeah. was in Kernville at that time, and we felt it there. That's <laughs> like 150 miles north or something. Well, the day after was when I entered the trial, and I went down to the doctor's office. Again, yeah, I remember. It's an earth-shaking moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember getting on the 101. There's not another car in sight the day after the earthquake. And I exited on uh, Van Nuys, and the builders, co the contractor's building was sitting, what had fallen over into the off-ramp, oh, and no. I had to go around it to get oh, to my, my doctor's God, office. Through the rubble. 
had to get. Must have felt like uh, Berlin in 1944. It was eerie, but it was so important for me to have this one last uh, opportunity because my doctor didn't think I was going to make it much longer. And he got me on this trial, um, L542. uh, And it, uh, to our surprise, after several months, my T cells kept going up. They never thought you could build your T cells back, but mine came back. Yeah. All they could do was stop them from falling further. That's exactly so right. And currently, to bringing up speed is that, uh, as you know from the book, is I have between six hundred and eight hundred T cells today. I, which my, is pretty normal. Which right? is getting close to normal. And I was had a low at that point in time. I had twenty five T cells. Oh wow! And, so anything mm-hmm. could have any fungus or any infection I, or even a cold or something could have got hold of you huh and i had several things um even now at 600 t-cells you know as we get older there's things that are going to happen anyways yeah. but even now i do have to be careful because my immune system still isn't quite as strong as most people's did you feel some trepidation with covid a little bit yeah was it more uh, psychological or is that actually like you at a higher risk level because you have hiv uh again with hiv it's about staying healthy it's about not getting sick and anything that's running systemically in our bodies, keeping that in check and being on top of it, like one step ahead of any trend that may happen. So with COVID, it was just trying to be smart with the knowledge they were giving us to keep your distance, to wear your mask too. Um, it didn't scare me because I've already gone through an era where I lost dozens of friends, you know? Yeah. Um, I know there's some really sad photos in your book about, uh, yeah. You know, who's here's not who here's who's not with us anymore. And everybody just seems so young and vibrant yeah. and then just dropping away. I remember Red uh Elizabeth Taylor did say it the best. Uh it was the most descriptive and memorable for me because when she said it felt like all the color was leaving the world. Back in the late eighties through mid nineties, um, it was one funeral after another after another, and these were all young beautiful people um, with so much life ahead of them that are being stricken down and dying. It felt like all these people who were trying to achieve their goals and, and enjoying life were, were leaving us. Um, so she said it right when she said all the color was leaving the world. Yeah, you that's know? a great way to put it. Now I had, currently I'm on about nine different uh, prescriptions. So my medication, um, if I didn't have insurance, which I'm fortunate to have now, because there was a time period I did not have insurance because I couldn't get it. Yeah. But for 15 years, I went without insurance. And um, Was this Obamacare that got you back? Yeah. You know, and this is where people don't realize is that my option in uh, 94 was go out um, on disability and hopefully try to stay alive, and which I did that for a few years. But as soon as... To stay busy and keep my mind active, I got very involved in our community, and I ended up doing landscaping for one lady, Judy Fairchild, who um, uh, told us that the job you got like two hundred dollars for this yeah. huge job. <laughs> yeah, but that was so, probably the best advertising you ever did. It was kind of amazing because, as an entrepreneur, I highly recommend that that tactic. Uh, if you see somebody who you know will promote what you're doing. I didn't do it for that reason, but it, it sure did. Out, huh? It worked out. We don't market at all these days. It's all word of mouth, and I'm very honored to have the reputation that we have. But all that said is, as my business became a business, uh, I had to make a choice. You know, um, and my I'm, now that my T cells were starting to come back, um, I was still very low, and I was still going through a lot of things health wise. Well, emotionally too, I and emotionally, probably just having. 
a place to go and things to do and just the mm-hmm. distraction of keeping busy was probably very therapeutic. It was. I know I like I, you know, have a bad day. I get broody and just feeds on itself, you know. So like I, you know, am a deadline oriented person putting out the magazines and the website and doing a podcast and everything else. If I don't have a deadline, I just like get all mopey and Yeah. Yeah. So Well, it's interesting because on the days, you know, when I started that trial and I started focusing on taking care of myself and more so getting enough sleep and working out, doing the things I love and realizing that uh, I needed to take whatever days I have left to help make a difference in any way I could. I got involved with the downtown. We formed the downtown community council. We got yeah, involved you got all those beautiful care. lights up on, uh, on, yeah, the, on the, the trees, trees and then the pots and downtown and try to reinvigorate the importance to our historic core of downtown. Yeah. That was the regional center. Uh, oh, our, yeah. Well, those gorgeous buildings, the architecture in downtown Ventura is really, that must have been a very prosperous town back in the 10s, 20s, 30s. It was. When, they're putting up all those gorgeous buildings. Historically, uh, I remember um, between AIDS Care and AIDS Partnership, there was that, that was my first community outreach of doing, trying to do something to make a difference because we needed to do something to provide services for this community. But from that point on, history, I love history. I love architecture. In Ventura, this region is very rich in history. And if you look at, if you see not just the buildings we have today, but look through the pictures and see what buildings used to exist in the city. It was a very, uh, uh, very architecturally rich community. So as a city council member, one of the things I like to see more than anything is to highlight more of our history, more monuments, yeah. more uh, dedications. And maybe t- the newer buildings coming in, it'd be great if they start taking on some more of the historical characteristics of what we had in our city because it was architecturally very rich and not the mission revival that's characterized with ojai so much mm-hmm. there's some of that but it's, it seems to be more diverse it's it, it's all beautiful but back in the late 90s when they did we did the visioning document for or visioning uh, yeah uh plan for ventura we all agreed that uh, archi- uh uh, eclectic architecture was important. That while we have Santa Barbara, our sister city to the north, which went Spanish after the 1929 earthquake, uh, and we have Ojai out here, which has its own ambiance in a somewhat Spanish revival type way, Ventura likes to embrace all different types of architecture. Um, the difficulty with doing that is it's very difficult to be very prescriptive when somebody wants to build something. And to say, you can't do this and this... Uh postmodern fashion right because yeah. right now we're seeing a lot of modern go up now a lot of the projects going up These today, glass cubes right and i love all architecture um but uh the easiest thing to go cheap on uh, to cheapen is probably contemporary and yeah so I'm very cautious of that because when we start using colors to help identify architectural detail then I know I got to worry that there's there's probably something missing on that building but there's so many um, there's so much opportunity in Ventura and the best thing about Ventura is really the culture the people the history the beach the beach the surf uh, we live in paradise we really do yeah so what um 
Tell us about the the next Randy, because you, okay, you yeah. have a thing for a Randy. <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of Randys in my life, but two of them very, very dear to me in my life. And uh, Randy Morrison, after he passed away, I didn't think I would ever be able to uh, date again. Not to mention be alive. Oh, no, you enough. have the diagnosis, yeah. Right. You know, I I was just lucky to wake up the next day, quite frankly. But I managed to read, uh, meet uh, Randy and Sinus and. Initially, I thought it was just some company. Uh, I don't know, maybe a yeah. one night stand type thing. And um, well, you um, invited yourself on a trip to Hawaii. To Hawaii, yeah. <laughs> just uh, like, hey, uh, we you going to Hawaii? Hey, what about? Uh, you know, it was funny because this the whole I love concept. Hawaii. Hey. <laughs> it's funny though, Brett, because uh, just the whole concept of dating, knowing that you have a quote terminal illness, <laughs> and knowing that it was contagious. You know, if not. Um, being if he didn't be very safe um it was a very tough thing and i actually i remember the first few dates i went on i would use that as when i realized halfway through that dinner that this isn't somebody i'm necessarily that interested in nice to meet but that's about it yeah i would use the aids as a as uh the way to get out of you know yeah. a long-term breakup type thing uh but then i met randy and i was afraid to tell him uh, until I really had to, and then um, because I really enjoyed being with him, and he was simple, uh, caring. Um, he had all the chair. He's an excellent chef. I've had his food. Oh, yeah, he loves the barbecue. It's kind of amazing because we're an excellent complement to each other, and uh, we both weren't really looking for some long-term relationship. Uh, we've been together now twenty-eight years. Yeah, still and, like. The- like, uh, what are we doing here? I know, but, no, but we're married. We're, we got, got married. Got to put so, a ring on it. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I tell people we got married seven years ago, and people say, "Well, you've been together twenty eight years. What took you so long?" I said, "Well, it was against the law for yeah. most of our time, even uh, civil unions." You're right. You know, and I got to tell you again from a political standpoint, um, I never, I don't believe in separate but equal. So I believe in treating everybody equally. Um, but I never cared about the term marriage. I never, it was, if you called everything domestic partnership, if the law did, if our government did, then that would be fine. Let marriage be part of the church. But when we got married that day at the top of the botanical gardens. By our mutual friend, uh, Fred the Bish. Honorable Judge Fred Yes, Bish. he yeah. was honored to do it. And I was honored to have him officiate our wedding. And well, there's 500 of our closest friends up there <laughs> from every walk of life in our in our every aspect of our life with different uh, backgrounds, a very diverse group. And I got to tell you, that was by far the most beautiful day of my life. And I say that because not only was I marrying somebody that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, but I was doing it on a beautiful hilltop overlooking the that city you that helped I love. Build. That I helped build. That we, yeah, the botanical dark. garden. We'll talk about that okay. briefly because I imagine you probably don't want to get too far into that. But oh, to go back to Randy, I see yeah. every once in a while in the book, he's kind of leaning over your shoulder. And there's like, maybe there's like needs a little editing here. It wasn't quite like that. It's like <laughs> you said on your first date that you put him to work. He, yeah, that that input came from Randy because there's certain things that you remember, and I remembered that, but it wasn't that important to me. But it was to him because yeah, what was like, going, who is this guy? I know. <laughs> well, when I learned how handy he was, you know, Randy's one of those people that um, uh, he knows how to do all the little details. I'm very much a big picture person. 
Yeah. Which is why I think we're a great complement for each other. But that that day up there with um it really felt like we became accepted and an equal footing with all of our friends and neighbors and family, whether they be Republicans or Democrats or Catholic or a Presbyterian or or uh, atheist, it doesn't matter. It was just we were all part of the human experience in our community. And all those labels became less less important, important. less identifying. Like that's exactly right. Yeah. So I've learned through a lot of my experiences in life is when we talk about encouraging people to be their best, we're talking about. I mentioned what a what a bad leader in my mind. The easy thing for a leader to do is to instill fear, to instill make people feel threatened to divide people yeah to me the best characteristics of a good leader is somebody who instills hope in people and allows people to uh know that they have potential that that they need to we need to help each other develop that potential and unites people together and i've learned the best way to unite people together is one through the arts that touches a common human denominator and two to be courageous enough to be the person that i believe god created us to be and the more people get to know how diverse our world is, the more we get excited in the morning to wake up and to yeah, know because what what's possible. What's possible? Yeah, and the, it just it just enriches our lives so much to know how diverse what a diverse uh, uh, community the human race is. Yeah. You know. Well, also to go back to the marriage. Now, mm-hmm. this wasn't long after Obergefell was that the Supreme Court case yes. that. The Supreme Court stepped in and said that every other state had to honor, was it Hawaii's marriage contract? It, it was. It was Hawaii's. So basically yeah. said, you know, people can get married. Same-sex marriage. And it happened so fast because even Obama at that point in 2012 mm-hmm. was in favor of civil unions and, you know, still That's supporting correct. the Defense of Marriage Act. And... It was Joe Biden that stepped forward and said, wait a minute, you know, he got out in front of it. And then it was like, I know it was all probably staged and choreographed how mm-hmm. Joe Biden made the statement in favor of same-sex marriage. And then Obama's like, well, I'm not got quite there yet. But, you know, it was all, all like happened so fast. It did. Like, it just seems ridiculous now. Like Prop 8, remember Prop 8? Was it 2008? I remember, I got to tell you, do I remember it? Because... <laughs> Uh, Prop 8 was, uh, marriage was legal for three months in California. And Randy gave me a lot of uh, a lot of flack for not asking him to marry me uh, during that three months. I heard about that for the next five years. <laughs> uh, but I told him uh, either one of us could ask each other. It, 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 just, it doesn't have to be on me. Um, but I remember uh, doing some work with a neighbor. And I remember saying to my neighbor, um, uh, I was really shocked to see so many yes on Prop 8 signs. Prop 8 was to take away a defined marriage as a union between a man and a woman. And I was shocked to see so many signs going up in our own neighborhood. And our neighborhood in downtown has a pretty large uh, gay influence. A lot of people don't know that, but there is. And so we're shocked to see all these signs going up. And my neighbor stopped what he was doing when I brought, up, brought that to his attention. And he says, well, you don't know, Doug, that is against the Bible. And 
I was really shocked. Yeah, there's a, start so, reading the Bible. There's a lot of things you get in the Bible. There's if you're going to start uh, picking out all those things from Leviticus, then <laughs> you're probably going to be uh, getting strung up uh, four times before you wake up. It's so... It's mi- just like... Depending on what you eat or what clothing you wear. Which crops you grow side by side. Who should be stoned and who shouldn't. I yeah. mean... Uh, I tend to I tend to be a very spiritual person. I think you know that about me. Um, and um, it's described predominantly to the Christian faith. But I believe that it's really more about uh, knowing that there's something greater than us in this universe. And that I believe there is a plan. And I believe that um, um, I believe the God that I believe in is smiling when he sees me being courageous enough to do the things I do and to stand for what I believe in and uh, to make the changes and to help build the bridges that I know I've been able to build in my life. And um, I wish everyone had the opportunity to be able to express themselves, to develop what what potential they have, uh, to take a risk and go for that dream. Because through through the face of adversity, I've managed to persist. I've managed to create a fantastic quality of life. But what's important to me is my friendships. Everything else is just extra, you know? Yeah. But it's the people I've met along the way. If you told me in 1990 when Randy Morrison died that I would have the quality of life I have, I would have the respect in the community. That you'd even be around. Or that I'd even be around. Um, this is all a tremendous gift. Yeah. You know? So um, I do live my life very much um, thinking about uh, how I spend my time. Did, did, I, did I do something productive that day? Did I help somebody reach their goals? Um, I get stressed like other people. I'm not so Pollyanna as to think that I don't get stressed. I do get stressed yeah. about things. But I realize the noise in the world is who said what and who did what and do you have enough money to pay that water bill <laughs> um, or what have you. That's the noise of life. The, the real important things in life is relationships, and making a difference and making sure this world's better off because we're here. There you go. You know? That's beautiful. <laughs> so speaking of which, um, uh, well, I want to talk about downtown, but also mm-hmm. we're both in the Rotary Club and have a lot of, well, we're in different Rotary Clubs, but we're both past presidents. Now, yep. I think you weren't president. No, Rob Van Newkirk was. Van Newberg. He's president again now. Again. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I think he told me that. Well, yeah. But that's the downtown Ventura Club, which is pretty big. It's a lot bigger than our. My club's like 75 or 80 people. You're close then. We're about 100. I think we're about 100, 106, something like that. I think people associate Rotary Club with a certain sort of like old white dude, a business person. It's not that at all. Not at all. our club is really relying more and more on a cohort of uh, young people in their 30s and and lots of women. I think we're almost 50-50 or like mm-hmm. maybe 40-60 uh, gender balance. So it's changing. But what I love about Rotary is all these people come together in the spirit of service. And we have a lot of fun. It's like uh, mm-hmm. not, you know, joking around and busting each other's chops all the time and but at the end of the day, I mean, our little club of like 80,000 people, we're putting like three hundred and fifty dollars or $400,000 worth of philanthropy into the wow. world. Yeah. And that's uh, more than any one of us could do on ourselves. And exactly. with Rotary, you have an organization that spans the world, 1.4 million members and eight 
plus thousand clubs and you know we work club to club all over the world and it's just mm-hmm. such a great experience you talk about the connection and having something larger than yourself um just mm-hmm. like i would have never thought that i would <clears throat> you know i've always been involved with the chamber of commerce and as a business Same person right? yeah uh, but now it's like 20 years on Rotary, and I've really uh, just becomes more and more a part of my, you know, organizing I think principle. Have you been to a Rotary International? I conference? have. It's it's phenomenal. It. I got to tell you, everything you just said. I I can't. I have to uh, uh, second because. Um, what I didn't realize, I remember Rosalie Measures and Terry Schaefer, uh, 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 Schaefer and a few other friends kept saying, you need to come to our Rotary sometime. Well, I'm not somebody who typically joins something. I've been somebody that creates something, nonprofits, and um, but I was in a fraternity in college, but I was only in a fraternity because they had great parties. Yes, there was a reason exactly, for that, right? Yeah. But all that said is I went to Rotary and I shortly realized that my mentality uh I'm a very I'm a, I'm a very strong Rotarian, and in my beliefs in the world and what we should be doing and helping how we should help each other, and it is so refreshing to be focused on that at least once a week through a Rotary meeting, and to know them surrounded by a hundred people who all know that it's service above self and making sure that we do whatever we can to better our community, whether it's here in our community or better the world by uh, helping to drill wells, water wells in Sudan or Or polio immunizations or computer labs in Mexico um, or building houses for people. Um, Just putting our resources together to make a difference. Uh, Like you, I was president a few years ago of our club. Our club turned 100 the year that I was president. And I joke joke about the fact that in a uh, tongue-in-cheek way, that our club was formed during uh, this women's suffrage and when women got the right to vote. Uh, 79 years later, Rotary allowed women into the <laughs> Rotary, okay? And 100 years after a club was formed, uh, our Rotary club elected their first openly gay president. Oh. Now, I joke about that. Openly okay. gay. Openly gay. <laughs> I, that's, the, that's the key. Is I'm sure there's been others, but yeah. uh, at least everyone knows yeah. my life's an open book, literally. But what's interesting is if you go to a Rotary International Convention in particular, if you don't, as well as going to a lot of our clubs, the image of Rotary or service clubs has always been this white male uh, Mm. businessman type thing. It is so not that. This is, I actually sat at the Rotary International Convention in Canada in Toronto a few years ago. Oh yeah, Cherie Edwards was our president that year. Or no, Deirdre Daly. Actually, I'm not sure, but. Yeah, I, I, you're pretty, you're better at names than I am. Um, but I do know we had the uh, Queen's sister was there from England and we had um, uh, Laura Bush spoke and um <laughs> that was funny because that was a few years ago and her opening line was so how do you like my husband now <laughs> and I thought that was pretty classic but nonetheless the diversity the energy the focus on things like human trafficking and eliminating polio and drilling wells and education and building uh, women's sco- schools in Africa all this focus is so exciting that People across the world have an organization like Rotary that they, they could do these sort of things together. Yeah, if it was up to individuals, ourselves, we could never accomplish any of these things. You have to come together with mm-hmm. like-minded people and pool your resources and and have that. I know this, uh, when I was at the Rotary Conference, I 
she's got a friendship. I'd love to get her here to do a program for us and maybe for you too. But mm -hmm. she was this very modest church lady in Georgia and her son got AIDS and died and she didn't even know he was gay and yeah. she just felt terrible. I mean, she knew after he got the diagnosis and she decided that she wasn't going to mourn. She was going to organize and she started these health clinics in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. And she's just one lady with a mission, but she found all these rotary clubs in Africa that could handle everything on the ground, including coordinating with the governments. And in, in Africa, rotary clubs are often uh, non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and government. Uh, so there's already this infrastructure there that made it so simple for her to get on there and provide this one day where these these this was mostly nomadic communities mm -hmm. where the people come in from all over to get shots and eye exams and get their teeth checked and get you know uh, vitamins and health That's prescriptions and and just drugs that were donated and. Just like, I mean, she yep. had like 80, 80 of these, you know, Rotary Health Days that she organized in, in Africa. And she had a booth That's at amazing. the conference and it was just, <clears throat> you know, there was nothing special about her. She was not some big wheeler dealer. She was just a very committed lady who wanted to... Tenacious. Yeah, tenacious, persistent. You know, what's amazing, what you just highlighted is one of my lessons that I've learned in my life. And... Um, is I would encourage people to know that if you think something, if you see a need, share that, share that thought, you know, because everything begins with a thought. And I know instead of sitting back and thinking, they, why doesn't somebody do this? Or, they should do that. Yes, that's we one are of my they. pet peeves is when people are like, oh, why don't these idiots get their crap yeah. together and do this? Well, you know, there's like my favorite FDR story was right after he got elected before he took office, so like the winter of 32, 33, and all these labor leaders came in with their plans and programs, much of which was already in the works for what was gonna become the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And the FDR was, you know, they're presenting them and they're getting ready to go, and FDR says, I agree with you, I wanna do it, but now you gotta go out there and make me. It was like, <laughs> it doesn't end. Just saying, you know, oh, these people are gonna take care of it. You got to roll your sleeves up and get busy. You got to exactly make it. Right. You got to create the conditions where it's impossible for these things that you want to see in the world to not get done. You have to make it inevitable. It's, it's absolutely been amazing uh, to see, even in a small way, everything begins with a thought. And, uh, and for me, just knowing how short my life was going to be and knowing that each day mattered. Yeah, that's I, hence the title of your book, Give Me Time. Give Me Time, because it was it was a matter of um, making sure that I made a difference and that my voice was heard because so many, so many of my friends uh, were not around anymore to have their, their voice heard. And I had that opportunity. So uh, I did know, I, I learned early on that when we saw we needed services uh, uh, for people that were affected by HIV and AIDS, we started AIDS Care, and then we started the AIDS Partnership, and then uh, we saw our downtown that was closed at nights, and there was nothing going on at all. It was a has-been area. Loretta Merriweather and I started the Downtown Community Council, and then uh, Historic Preservation. I was involved in Historic Preservation. Usually, 
trying to figure out um, what the top 10 most endangered buildings might be. And then oh, the next year we would update that after a few buildings were demolished. And, um, but I, I realized that uh, uh, taking your ideas through fruition and getting others to believe in it, because if you believe in it, there's a chance other people believe in it as well. The Botanical Gardens was the classic example of, I went to Mid Midge Stork's um, living room, we were talking, she just came back from a vacation, and she had a couple other friends over, and we all discussed the Botanical Gardens idea, and saying, do you think a Botanical Gardens would add value to our quality of life here in Ventura? Yeah. And to me, the answer is emphatically yes, for a lot of reasons. But I wanted it in one spot. The spot I wanted was Grant Park, which is overlooking downtown Ventura, overlooking yeah. the islands, the historic core of our region. It's the most depicative side of why we all live here in this region and yeah. very underutilized. So now, um, you know, 18, 19 years in the making, we were seated um, uh, leasing 106 acres entire park. Over 50,000 plants have been planted. Millions and millions of dollars have been raised. We had a little setback with the Thomas fire. A little setback, in fact. <laughs> like burned. Yeah, got scorched. Mm. Got torched. Now, you, your home is in the path. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, it's amazing because I love creating things. And to me, I could, I could live in, well, this is a nice office here. Um, <laughs> I could live in, I don't need a whole lot. But I do love showing people what I envision and what I see, and I get an adrenaline rush, whether I do somebody's landscape business or, I've, or building my own home. So I built my final home that I live in now, uh, up on Church Street. Uh, it's the fourth house I built in my life, and the last, I'm not planning on building not another one. counting the mud homes that used to be Oh yeah, they used to build. Yeah, little <laughs> mud, mud villages, yeah, I, mud I used, buildings. I used to love as a kid, uh, after I got through weeding and planting, because I always loved with the soil and and the plants i would build uh mud cities yeah. in the in the soil in the dirt and then periodically when i got bored when i did everything i could possibly imagine to make the things as cool as it can be uh a natural disaster would happen like a garden, a hose. garden hose yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know but all that said is i built my house i live in now up on top of the hill in downtown ventura it's um the most beautiful thing i've ever created and um that night at the Thomas Fire, I remember going to bed that night at uh, shortly after it started. It started in Santa Paula, 25 miles away. Yeah, and blew so fast. It blew so fast. When Randy came home at 10.30, he says, Doug, you got to get up. There's a fire. And I said, Randy, that's in Santa Paula. You're probably smelling the fire from Santa Paula. He says, no, look outside. And it was all orange behind the hills oh, behind yeah. us. That's so ominous. So when we left uh, at 12.06, we left. I had time to at least water down her yard. Um, keep everything as wet as I could and we saw uh, the flames were at 12.06 the flames were 30 to 40 feet high against our back wall to our oh, property man. and I knew then that our house was going to go um, but it was so surreal I remember being in shock and we went down to the wharf to watch the hillside go up and just fire the entire city felt like it was on fire and at 2.30 in the morning we decided to go back up because we didn't see a big explosion up there yet and the house is pretty good size and we went back up despite uh, what better judgment we probably shouldn't have yeah. <laughs> but we did and fortunately um, we were able to put out that our mulch was on fire the palm trees were on fire um, the house was still standing our pool cover was on fire 
oh, because without electricity, we didn't know how to open the pool for the uh, firefighters to yeah. use if they showed up. Um, we lost 22 houses to the west of us, um, between us and Hawaiian Village, and then Ho Hawaiian Village went up itself uh, and collapsed at 4.30 that morning. Uh, 900 structures? How many yeah. structures total? Uh, it was 550 homes in Ventura, about 200 apartments, and wow. about 7,500 homes damaged in the city of Ventura alone. Yeah, that was much worse than it was in Ojai, because I felt like it was bad upper Ojai. got you got guys raised. Got, well, you guys got circled. I, I mean, know, <laughs> we we're so fortunate. There were yeah. gaps and the breaches and, the, you know, one of the reasons why agriculture is so important to Ojai that people don't think about is the green belt yep. that protects those irrigated lands that protect against wildfire. Mm -hmm. And it's sad because it's getting so difficult with the economic conditions and environmental conditions to, to grow yep. citrus crops here that people are pulling them out. Well, it's amazing to live in such a fortunate state, a fortunate region of the world where uh, this state of California creates, uh, feeds, uh, f provides 50% of the fruits and vegetables for this nation. It's, Not to yeah, mention this the is the breadbasket here. It's pretty unbelievable. And <clears throat> during the fire, what we saw is the citrus orchards in particular, are, they're very clean crops. And uh, avocados, not so much, right? But uh, citrus are very clean. And But just adding some greenery, some buffer, it really does, it did help buffer the fire on many communities. Yeah. So I'm hoping um, in Ventura that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be our last fire. Uh, this is... No. The fuel load is already getting built up again. It you is. know, it's been dry. That's one one irony is that when you have a dry spell like this, you don't get the fuel load building up. Mm -hmm. But we're still vulnerable to fire and always will. So what I'm hoping is, um, you know, most of the, the land trust has done a phenomenal job to help preserve our hill sites in Ventura. I'm hoping that we were able to maybe encourage them to build some orchards. Okay. Well, we're going to have to wrap up okay. here pretty soon. I'm running out of space on the disc. But um, I just wanted to talk quickly about the Cultural Arts Center. Okay. And uh, repurpose the fairgrounds, high-quality hotels. I mean, you are an, an envisioner. Well, some of this, the city's permitting an inspection process, the kind of ministerial stuff that makes yep. it hard for people to get stuff done. And they just get frustrated and they just give up. Yeah, And then you end up with the <laughs> persistent people who have all the money and the financing and not necessarily have the good of the community at heart. So, and the creativity. Yeah. yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And that's why I'm so honored to be in a leadership position to help set policy and set uh, uh, direction for our community. Because um, it's easy for me to envision how we could be our best. Okay. Uh, and I know very strongly that you have to always look at what we're encouraging and discouraging to happen. And as an engineer, as somebody who believes in science, um, I know that one of the universal laws is that everything follows the path of least resistance. Yes. So if we want people to permit something, if we want people to take a risk and open that business uh, or employ somebody uh, or to build that home, um, we need to make that the path of least resistance. Because everything in the universe follows the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And I believe that people in mass are not excluded from that comment. So yeah. uh, you always have to look at what you're encouraging and discouraging, the unintended consequences and the intended consequences. So I'm very cognizant of all that as I 
help lead Ventura for at least the next three and a half years. Uh, although I've learned early on that uh, no matter how I vote, I will, uh, I will probably piss off half the people. Yeah, if it's uh, less than half, then you win. <laughs> yes. If it's half plus one, you win. I mean, it's like uh, four four votes. That's so all you need. You just got to convince three of your colleagues. That's right. But and you're no, a salesman, so you know how that how you know the arts of persuasion. Well, what I tell people, what I tell my constituents, my neighbors, what they may disagree with me at times, is that you could count on me for three things: the fact that I will always listen to the public, I will always be accessible, and uh, I will listen to uh, you. You will be heard, and I will do my homework. I will make sure I show up prepared to make a decision on behalf of our community, and I will strive to make the best decision for our community. We may, after that, agree to disagree on uh, how I weighed things, but just know that my intent is to make the best decision for our community, yeah. for the future of our community. And I love doing this. I don't like seven-hour meetings. I'm not used to sitting still that long, <laughs> but um, it's truly probably the best thing I could be doing at this point in my life. That's excellent. Well, that's a good place to end because you are having all this extra life and you're putting it all to good purpose. And I'm happy to be your friend. Well, thank you, Doug. Thank you very much. And thanks for your friendship. Just thinking out loud. Doug Halter's journey is very inspiring and his book was great fun to read. And it, it is gratifying to me that despite our different backgrounds, growing up in different parts of the world with different cultures, we have come to share a very clear sense of service above self and the joys of joining with other people from many different backgrounds to make the world a better place. It makes me feel very good about my own involvement in the Rotary Club of Ojai and the Rotary Club involvement that I share with Doug. And as we look towards Ojai's future, its planning, growth, traffic issues, all the other thorny issues we face, it's good to know that we have in Doug a caring neighbor to the West in Ventura and that we can learn a lot from each other. That's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.